Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because she was in labor, in pain from giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. It was a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven royal crowns on his heads. His tail swept down a third of heaven's stars and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was snatched up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the desert where God has prepared a place for her. There she, she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down. The old snake, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. They gained the victory over him on account of the blood of the lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives didn't make them afraid to die. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But oh, the horror for the earth and sea the devil has come down to you with great rage, for he knows that he only has a short time. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he chased the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly to her place in the desert. There she would be taken care of, out of the snake's reach, for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth, the snake poured a river of water after the woman so that the river would sweep her away. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her children, on those who keep God's commandments and hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Shirley. Phew, and to think that some churches take it easy on the Sunday after the 4th of July. I sent this reading to Shirley a little early, and I warned her that it was kind of intense and pretty weird, and she emailed back saying, I'll read it, and yes, it is intense and weird. And so thanks for being our reader this morning. The last couple weeks, we've been sitting in a bit of a lull in the action in our summer reading of Revelation, uh, what Pastor Andre Franklin last week referred to as the interlude. Uh, I've been thankful for that lull. It's given me some time uh, for uh, what we've learned to kind of sit and set in. As I watched the 4th of July fireworks on Thursday. It was, it was our two oldest kids' first time they'd ever seen fireworks, which I don't know how we held them out that long. 
uh, I couldn't help but think of some of the similarities to what we've been reading in what we have yet to read. The imagery in Revelation is explosive and violent. Uh, and it kind of all happens one on top of the other. Um, it's assaulting to the senses. Sometimes you, you want to cover your eyes or close your ears. Uh, there's like rainbow flashes of lightning or crashes of thunder. or Sometimes you even want to hold your nose for the aftermath of all that exhaust smoke, right? And then while, just like the fireworks, while one firework is still uh, kind of like burned into the after image of your eyes and your mind, another one jockeys for position like right on top of it, overlaying and kind of obscuring while also kind of contributing to this big accumulation in the sky. Uh, that, that was my experience with the fireworks. The, there are sur surprises around every corner and pops and rings and flares, and I think that's also happening in Revelation. Uh, I took the big kids um, over to a neighbor's house and we set off ground fireworks um, and it was relatively safe. Uh, we interspersed uh, trivia about the founding of America between uh, each firework, which Durham Public Schools are doing pretty good uh, with that stuff. But the ongoing joke with our fireworks was that the next firework that was going to get set off was completely different than anything that we've seen before. Like the next shark firework was gonna be significantly different than the previous shark firework that we set off, right? And, uh, which is absurd. But when we watched some like really overexposed cell phone video of these fireworks with Titus who was sitting right there, he kept saying, I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one. Like, yeah, like it was significantly different. Um, but I think similarly how each firework is both the same and really different than the one before, I think that's what's happening with these images in Revelation. So we're kind of going to cover some big ground today, but really focus in on uh, Revelation 12 uh, that Shirley just read. Um, and I think it's good to go slow like this, sort of focus in, um, but we can't lose the sight of the whole big picture uh, that, that we're encountering here. So we get to this explosive section from Revelation 12 to 14. And if we're not careful, we can get lost in the weeds. We try to decode each little detail. Maybe this is how you were raised to, to deal with Revelation, is to pick apart and to kind of create charts or uh, match it up with your schedule or try to come up with the current instantiation of each beast. Uh, that's a really fun practice to do. Or speculate on what the um, 666 uh, mark might be. Um, and man, if no one knows anything about Revelation. Everyone knows something about 666. I used to have like a, um, a phone number with 666 in it, and when you would tell someone at checkout, they would always look at you like, oh, you know? And I, <laughs> I was kind of like, tell me what you think that means, that, that you're so ner nervous about me now, right? Um, but when we get into chapter 12, what Shirley read, we see this, this image that is kind of straightforward and kind of beautiful, but also fluid and multifaceted and complex. Uh, we kind of take a surprising detour of where we've been from the persistent focus on the throne and the lamb. Uh, like almost every chapter has a song 
of praise to the throne that the lamb is worthy and everyone is kind of um, physically and geographically clustered around the throne. And we're introduced with a whole new character. And it's a female character, which is kind of surprising because Revelation doesn't have a very good reputation with female characters. But I think this one is pretty amazing. And I'm going to call her the Revelation 12 woman. And in my mind, she might should dethrone the Proverbs 31 woman as like the best paradigm of a biblical womanhood, right? Revelation 12 woman is tough. This lady is clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And that description seems so dreamy. It's almost like a Paul Simon song or something. I'm waiting for her to have like diamonds on the soles of her shoes too, right? But it's, it's, it's really captivating because our gazes are fixed on her and our imaginations are sparked by her. Um, Revelation does this strange thing, we were talking about it up top, where it's a... Uh, we're given this picture that is not really a snapshot because it's, it messes with time really strangely. It's almost like an anticipation of if you have an iPhone and you have those live photos, that's both a snapshot, but you also see the two seconds before and the two seconds after. So it's this moving capture of what's happening. So this woman is both pregnant and has given birth, uh, reminding us that Revelation operates in a different sort of time, like a kairos, like a, instead of um, uh, kind of a, a point in time. So put away your chronos, your chronological stopwatches, and get in this kairotic moment for Revelation. I pictured her here in this collage that I made at the beginning of summer that really helped me try to read uh, the scripture as like a, a sort of a black Madonna and she's got a crown that would make Betsy Ross blush, and she's got this lunar footstool that she's kind of hiding behind, right? And it's really cool. Uh, what's particularly fascinating is when you start to attempt to kind of pull on this image and pull out of it and figure out what or who this kind of brave warrior mother is, you, you start to turn up about a dozen things and no one thing. Like a straightforward read on the page kind of has her as Mary, and we can see that. Um, Jesus' own mother, who brings him into a world of conflict. Do you remember? Uh, not, not the tidy peanuts version of the Christmas story, but like Matthew's version, uh, where, where when we hold this kaleidoscope this way, we were reminded of Mary and Joseph on their refugee flight to Egypt. They're fleeing Herod's bloodthirsty attempt to root out possible opposition to his reign and rule. Jesus begins his early earthly life nursing at the breast of his refugee mother and guided by his adoptive father in a land that is not his own during census season. Jesus was born away from his would-be hometown and was immediately whisked to a safer place. I, th I think we see that after image here in this Revelation 12 woman. Or take a slightly different angle at a different facet, and you might even hear or see echoes of Eve, which is humanity's mother, well acquainted with the serpentine. Do we remember Eve's story talking to a snake? 
Revelation refers to this serpent as that old snake called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world. So this is a replay of a really familiar story. This is a replay of the original story, which repeats and perpetuates and recapitulates over and over again that Satan is a liar and a pretty good one at that. Remember, Satan, the accuser, even tries these tricks on Jesus. Do you remember that story at the beginning of Jesus' life in Luke 4? Um, right after he's baptized, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And this is a key moment in Jesus' embrace of his vocation in the beginning of his ministry. We have so many young adults here who are thinking about who they are to be and what they are to do in trying to discern vocation and discern their life. And we can look at Jesus who discerns and embraces his vocation in his life by being driven into the wilderness and undergoing temptation. I think this is the time and the place and the circumstance where he is tested to see just exactly what sort of person and what sort of savior he might be. Do we remember the details of that? He retreats to the desert for 40 days of fasting and sure enough, this happens whenever I'm hungry, too. Voices start to pop in my head, right? Sure enough, a voice starts whispering in his ear. Three temptations, and I think these are three temptations that we all face with regularity. The, the actual temptation was pretty specific to Jesus to turn stones to bread, to throw himself down from a high point, or to have authority in, uh, over everything in, in uh, exchange for his worship of Satan, um, but I think uh, we experience these uh, same temptations pretty regularly, and Henry Nouwen sums them up as the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be popular, and the temptation to be powerful. Some of these are stronger for us than others, and Jesus, time and time again, answers those temptations with the very word of God back to this accuser, truth back to these lies. So the, this story is, is also replaying in this image. Or look at her again, and you might even see the story of Israel in a microcosm. The, Israel, again, is the people of God, God's covenant partner, with a promise to rule with God, but often spun into the desert for exile for her own good or perhaps even her own punishment while being kept by God in exile, in the wilderness. This is a God who prepares a place for his people, who miraculously feeds her with manna from the wilderness and so much quail that it comes out of her ears. Israel is lifted up by Yahweh on eagle's wings. That's what Isaiah 40 says. So that she may run and not grow weary Walk and not be faint. A Revelation passage says that she flees this serpent combat with these wings as eagles. So we might see and hear Israel in this picture as well. Don't worry. There might even be one more that I can think of. Is this woman also the church? And this is a weird question, but remember, stay with me. Revelation doesn't play by the, like, the normal rules here. 
it might seem strange considering that we think that Jesus would give birth to the church and not the church giving birth to Jesus. But consider that line late in today's reading that says, the dragon was furious with the woman and he went on to make war on the rest of her children, on those who keep God's commandments and hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. The rest of her children, those brothers and sisters in Christ, the chosen family knit together and born by the waters of baptism that are stronger and more real than any bloodline. I hope, as confusing as this may be, I also hope it's kind of thrilling to see all these images and all these things happening. Hopefully some of these things are sliding into place in your mind or hopefully that you're, you're like creating like open tabs in your mind to go back and read and, and brush up on these stories. Uh, you have permission to feel all of these sorts of things in ways. And reading scripture, especially from Revelation, should be challenging. Like, it should be exciting. It should be inciting for you. That's one of the, the greatest reasons why uh, Revelation actually seemed like a good idea um, at the beginning of the summer is because it'll help us get into uh, our Bibles and, and uh, remember and, and reread our story. Um, so if these are confusing, if, if you're the sort of person that has a hard time holding all of these things and spinning all these plates at one time, um, remember that these uh, are reading open with this idea that these are all signs. Um, and signs, Signs point to something beyond themselves. They signify. So don't, don't get too hung up, but, but pay attention to where these things are pointing. They're not the thing, but they show you what the thing is. And for this section of Revelation, the thing is this cosmic conflict that's happening. We can see that. The thing is the generative possibility of the church's life of faithfulness in the world as we follow the lamb wherever he goes. The thing is endurance towards victory that only comes by loving our lives the exact right way in the exact right amount. Enough, we, we love ourselves enough to live in dignity and understand that nothing is wasted and that it all matters and that how you do anything is how you do everything, but not so much that we have an inflated view of our life that makes us lock down and protect, that, that, that we fear the end of our life so we don't um, do the things uh, that we need to do and that we compromise the very things that make life in Christ true and good and beautiful, right? Uh, I think that's a really powerful line. They, they did not love their lives so much um, that, that it, <laughs> they did not love their lives so much that, that it made them fear death. This, this to me, uh, this reminds me of a, a really uh, interesting uh, difference pointed out. Um, as when most people, when most people die or most people pass away, you have like an influx, whether you're famous or not, of of these sorts of thoughts about their life, uh, uh, eulogies or op-eds that talk about who someone was and how they lived. And th this happened in this uh, most recent season w with this um, Canadian gentleman named John Vanier. 
does anyone know who John Vanier is? Um, yeah, he was the founder of La Arche, um, which is a group of communities all over the world for people with and without disabilities. And um, when, when those eulogies started to come in about John Vanier, they, they started to surface all of these uh, older comments that other theologians or friends of John Vanier, or people who joined with him in this, this really beautiful ministry had said about them. And, and one of the things that stuck out to me um, is something, again, that Henry Nouwen had written about John Vanier um, that became even more important uh, following his life because uh, when someone dies, we also talk about what will their legacy be, right? What, what are people going to learn and say and, and continue to do um, after someone is long gone? And some of you think about that. Most of us at some level think about what, what, is, what is my legacy? What am I doing will matter long after I'm gone? And when Henry Nouwen was asked about the legacy of Jean Vanier, uh, he kind of uh, shook off the question and, and flipped it and changed it. He says, I don't really like to talk about legacy for Jean Vanier because legacy uh, is, is not a word that he would really like. Legacy entails building something based upon who you are or what you've done. And uh, I like the word uh, fecundity um, uh, a little better because fecundity is, is more of a seed word. It means you have to die so that then you can grow more and more and more. And, and if you look at John Vanier's life and, and, and those who look and feel and act and sound a lot like Jesus, that's what their lives look and feel and sound and act like. Uh, something that has to, um, as Jesus says, like a grain, a grain of wheat, it must fall to the earth and die. Um, otherwise, it can only be a single seed, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. Whoever serves me must follow me. Wherever I am, there my servant will also be. My Father will honor whoever serves me. That's from John 12. Those are Jesus' words. So we, so, so we again see this sort, of, this sort of invitation, this sort of expectation that really kind of chafes against... Um, how we mostly live or what we mostly feel like we need to survive, that we might not love our lives so much that we're afraid of death. Uh, when we start to follow the lamb, we're, we're called to and, and given everything we need to cultivate this sort of gospel humility that is at once incredibly reducing. It makes us in our world's kind of smaller and closer and more tight-knit, but it's also incredibly expanding. There's great opportunity in it. Rather than thinking less of ourselves or too much of ourselves, we simply are given the opportunity to think of ourselves less, like less often, because we're thinking more of Jesus. We're following the Lamb who's whispered the open secret that our lives weren't ours in the first place and can never be. That's, that's the open secret for us. Our lives are not ours. We're invited to give our lives to the one who can actually hold us up and take us through difficulty. All the self-protective things that we try to do to make our lives or to save our lives or to better our lives or to protect our lives look silly in the face of the lamb who is slain for the sins of the world and who wants us to look and act more like him. We look, like the image I have is like, we look like 
kind of like city slicker folks who are getting ready to go camping and we've never gone camping so we don't know what to bring or what we should do and we just carry everything and we wonder if there's going to be plugs for our electric stuff. And then when we get there, we're exhausted because we're carrying all this stuff that we don't actually even need and we're invited to lay down and just simply to follow. So we tap into these multifaceted stories of this Revelation 12 woman where we're joined somehow mysteriously to Jesus, the fruit of Mary's womb, who, who Jesus then becomes the first fruit. He's, he's like a forerunner of a new way to be human. Jesus' way to be human reaches way back to Adam and reverses his curse and takes away Adam's sin but also exposes the serpent's lies for what they are. I don't really, we don't have a space to get into Revelation 13 and 14, but you've, given, you've been given some tools to get in that, and I hope you do that this week. But there's a couple things I can't help but comment on in the next chapter. The next chapter features the two beasts. Do we, do we know these, the beasts of the land and the beasts of the sea? And I'm apt to think that that's scary stuff, like stuff that you don't want your... Like, if you're reading in a public place, you don't, you put, like, a magazine on the back of your book so other people don't know that you're reading about, like, Beast and Revelation, right? But that reading goes from terrifying and scary to, like, hilarious and sad when you start to realize that these two beasts are kind of, like, writing checks they can't cash. Like, these two beasts are phonies. And, and, And I think... That's a subversive message that John's vision wants us to realize. This first beast, go back and read it. It's made of spare parts, like a little bit of leopard here, a little bit of bear, a mouth like a lion. It's like a junkyard Frankenstein, and we're supposed to be scared of this beast, but most of the time we walk around terrified of this beast or unable to tell the difference. Or, or the, like, it, this first beast reminds me of that insult that, like, um, uh, like, that, that person's so gaudy, so tacky. They're like what a poor person thinks a rich person is like. They're, you know, like, that's, these beasts are, are what we might think a beast should be like. But it, they're not even that real. They're gaudy. The tags are still on the outfit, right? The second beast has this massive head wound, which is the strangest detail. But it's desperately trying to be like the lamb and capitalizing on this, like, faux vulnerability that, that says, like, I'm like the lamb, but I'm not the lamb. It, like, I imagine the second beast is, like, Instagram famous for how real he seems, right? Like, these guys are jokes. In, in like, the Mark of the Beast, which we mentioned earlier, 666, like, remember how numbers work in Revelation? And seven is, like, a God number, and seven is whole and complete, seven days of creation, forgive seven times, 77 times, right? Well, if that's true, then three sixes is just three almost but not quites. It's a triple failure to be 777, right? And it, it sounds like I'm mocking because these things are, are in and of themselves a mockery, right? They're blasphemy. Don't be duped by less than the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Revelation is trying to tell us. And we walk around so enticed by these things or so fooled by them. But, but 
like when when it comes down to it, to to be able to spot fakes and forgeries, you have to know the real thing really well. And so that's what our that's what our job is. That's what our calling is: is to know the real thing, to know the lamb so well that when we come across fakes, we look at them like, how did you get in here, right? This is how all this cashes out for us today. We learn that Jesus is often counterfeited, but rarely actually imitated. That's how following the lamb, that's what following the lamb wherever he goes means. That you follow the lamb, you follow Jesus into the unknown. That you follow him unto death. Because we don't love our lives in a way that makes us afraid to die. It also means that we share this paradoxical safety with Jesus, despite the terrors of the world, despite the well-documented problematic past, the trauma and the terror of the present, and the uncertainty of the future. We're somehow strangely safe with Jesus. The Revelation 12 woman has a place made for her, the, the church Israel God's people have a place made for us. In Christ, you and I have a place made for us. And I often feel like growing in maturity as a Christian means having our old ways of thinking renewed and having like old mottos that we uh, used to be really comforted by, kind of complicated and, and replaced by things that are maybe a little more true. So like, I really like Corey Ten Boom, but her quote that the safest place is in the center of God's will is strikes me as so dangerous for us because the second we sense danger we feel like we're not walking with God but walking with the lamb says that in this world there will be trials but I've overcome the world and even when it looks like the world's overcome me you're in the process of overcoming so maybe maybe a a switch and I, I know I've put this slide up before is James Bryan Smith's Uh, kind of motto, um, mantra, that I am a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells, and I am living in the unshakable kingdom of God. Maybe that's a little more helpful for us right now. Don't get me wrong, Corey Ten Boom deserved to say and think and know that to be true, but it's often hard for us to, to say and think and know that to be true. It can make us feel like we've messed up or stepped outside of the will of God. But we need a reassurance, and we need a vivid memory in the making of the trustworthiness and the truth of this unshakable and unbreakable kingdom in which with Jesus we're called kin, brothers and sisters. It's with the Revelation 12 woman that we too might be clothed in the sun. You you might have picked up that detail. This might be a little bit of a spoiler alert because later on in Revelation we're told a little something about the sun. We're told that the city, this garden city coming down from heaven, doesn't need a sun, doesn't need a moon, because the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. This is a similar image that the Apostle Paul picks up in treating us to wear Christ like a garment to put on Christ, not only for warmth, but also for protection. This Revelation woman is our forerunner in being clothed in the sun, which means radiating Jesus. So go this week with that image 
like burned into your mind, your mind's eye like a firework. Let it like crash and rattle around in your head and echo as you go. You're free to live a life of victory and endurance, not without difficulty or hardship, but smack dab in the middle of it, in and through Christ, because Christ has done it. Christ has walked that way, and when we follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we're going to walk through that hard stuff, but we're going to come out on the other end. The accuser has been thrown down. Victory has been claimed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your witness. Will you all pray with me? Lord, thanks for all these images which are so strange and so beautiful. If you told us in a PowerPoint slide with bullet points, we wouldn't believe you or we wouldn't know what to do with it. So help us do the work uh, to dig in and to reach back and to imagine forward. Uh, Lord, um, encourage us in our endurance with each other and most importantly, with you as we follow you into this world in hard stuff. Uh, some of us will go into hard stuff this week, and you're with us. Uh, you're right there, and you'll see us through. Uh, thanks uh, for this vision. Uh, let it be our vision. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.